Well, if you have your copy of scripture, uh, please turn to 2 Samuel 11. We're continuing our sermon series through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. The text before us this morning is a weighty one, but it's an important one for us to hear. Even as that last song that we sang was, was talking about returning to the Lord, now is the time for repentance. We're gonna see that play out in the life of David. One of the things that I remember most about my college days uh, was disappointment. Um, now, some of you resonate with that. I'm not, I'm not thinking about disappointment in terms of relationships or disappointment in terms of grades that I didn't re uh, receive. But I remember being profoundly disappointed by the repeated failure of spiritual leaders. I would, I would see people whose ministry seemed to be going so well. They were doing great things. And then there was this catastrophic failure. I know many of you can resonate with that. It might be someone whose ministry you've seen from a distance, or it might be someone in your local church or even nearer to you in your family. And we, we see these people, and they're people that we and sometimes aspire to be like. You see God using them. And from a distance, it seems like everything is going so well. And then in, the, in a moment, it seems like everything crumbles. As I started to learn more about some of these failures that I observed, it, it wasn't as if everything was actually going well. In fact, the more you learned about this, the more I could see that this public failure was, was really the catastrophic cliff at the end of a downward drift. There's almost always incremental steps along the way. A sin unconfessed. Small steps towards unfaithfulness. What we see in our own lives, we see in the life of David, that hearts rarely harden overnight. David is an example of this move from, from wholeheartedness to hard-heartedness. And we see this tragically play out in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now I wanna remind you as we get into this, some of the paradigms that we've seen play out in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. One of the paradigms that we've seen is that God establishes his king. And we, we've seen this, the narrative progress over, over the course of 1 and 2 Samuel, where he establishes his king. We also see that he exalts the humble and brings down the self-reliant. He exalts the humble and brings down the self-reliant. Now, what happens is through the first time we meet David, all the way up to chapter 11, we see that God is establishing him as a king. The trajectory that we see is that David is a Christ in the sense that he is an anointed messianic deliverer. We see some really remarkable things. He's anointed as king. He establishes his reign. He's anointed as king over both Judah and Israel. The ark comes to Jerusalem. We have this Davidic covenant so that we might be thinking like David is the Christ. But in chapter 11, everything falls apart and we see that David is not the Christ. 
The second thing that we see is that God exalts the humble and brings down the self-reliant. Now, our experience of David before chapter 11 is that he is he's reliant on God. He, he's humble. He's waiting for God's timing. But in chapter 11, all of that changes. And we see David no longer as a man of dependence upon God, but he becomes proud and self-reliant. But if we really look at the narratives about David, we see that those fissures have already started to crack. We've seen him do things that are not acts of faith. We've seen him be rash. We've seen him play a madman to get himself out of a hard situation. We've seen him multiply his wives. We've seen him carry the ark as a Philistine would. And we've seen him failing to consult God. In the life of David, in as much as the Bible gives us examples that we might not desire evil, we get a window into a human heart. We get a window in the life of David of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. We get a window today of what it means to be a man with a hard heart. The main thrust of this text for us today is this. Pursue wholehearted devotion to God. We're gonna see this play out tragically, but we're supposed to see this tragedy in the life of David and say, God is calling me to wholeheartedness, wholehearted devotion to him and his ways. Now, our text is a long text today. I'm gonna break it down into three main categories. So the first thing we'll see, David's personal failures. Secondly, David's paternal failures, those that relate to his fatherly role. And last, David's political failures. The theme, of course, is David's failure. Let's look first at David's personal failures. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now that's a subtle note there that the author is telling us that David is not being the shepherd king that he ought to be. When this whole narrative concludes at the end of chapter 12, we'll see that David actually does go out to capture the city. But now he is not acting in the kingly role that he is supposed to serve. And this is tragic because David was supposed to be different. David wasn't supposed to be like Saul. Saul was a man who was rash. He couldn't control his own desires. But David was supposed to be a man after God's own heart. And here in this story, we see him not acting like that. He's acting as a man who, who sees what he wants and he takes it. Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the room, woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is a woman that is probably known to David. 
Uriah is listed as one of David's mighty men. Eliam is listed as one of David's mighty men. Her grandfather, Ahithophel, is one of David's counselors. This couldn't be more grievous of an act. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now look at this pattern. David sees something that he judges to be good and beautiful, even though it is forbidden. And what does he do? He takes. Now think in the biblical storyline, where do we see that? Where someone sees what they think is good, even though it's forbidden, and they nevertheless, in disregard of God, take it for their own. Isn't this the pattern that we've seen in the Garden of Eden, in rebellion against God, redefining what you think is good? Well, the woman conceived, and she told David, I'm pregnant, and and David probably goes into a panic moment right now. He's thinking, what do I do? This sin that I've committed will no longer be secret. And I think it's appropriate for us to pause in this moment and to say, what is the right response? We know what David's gonna do. That's not the right response. But what is the right response? When we see our sin for what it is, too often we approach our sin like David In our own self-reliance, we attempt to cover up the sin and to pretend like it never existed. The gospel calls us away from self-reliance to humble dependence on God. The gospel calls us to repentance. The gospel calls us to see our sin for what it really is. The calloused heart looks at sin and tries to redefine it or explain it away or dismiss it. But the heart shaped by God sees our sin, recognizes that it's grievous and it's against God himself. The gospel calls us then to own our sin. I say this to my kids all the time. You know, they they come and confess sin and then they use all this euphemistic language for sin. I'd say, own your sin. And what I mean by that is acknowledge that you are the one who has sinned against God. Seek forgiveness. The repentant heart comes to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pray that God would change your heart. We tell this to our kids all the time. When we pray prayers of repentance, we tell them to say, and God Change my heart. Give me a heart that wants to obey. Now you need to repent to those you have harmed. You need to receive the consequences that may come. But the right response is not cover up. The right response is not to pretend as if you have not sinned. The right response is to cry out to God in repentance. Imagine how these events would have been different if David prayed the prayer that he prays in Psalm 51 at this very moment. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's what it means to have a repentant heart. To reach out to God in repentance. You know, David teaches us in Psalm 51 what it means to repent. But he also describes for us in Psalm 32 what the acts of non-repentance and having a calloused heart do to our lives. He says this, when I kept silent, like when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Brothers and sisters, I imagine in a room like this, some of you are in that Psalm 32 moment where you feel God's hand heavy upon you. You feel your bones wasting away through groaning all day long. What we do in that moment is we forsake our sin. We reach out to God. We rely on him to deal with our sin. Regrettably, that's not what David does at this moment. Uh, he takes the opposite approach and he has these series of cover-ups. So in verse six, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David when Uriah came to him. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet, enjoy the comforts of home. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. David's plan is this, bring Uriah home. Let him enjoy the comforts of home. Uriah will think this is his child. But Uriah proves faithful. He has a commitment to God. He has a commitment to God's people. So David tries another tactic, cover up number two in verse 12. David said to Uriah, you remain here one day also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah, you remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go to his house. Now, how wicked is that? David pretends to be this man's friend. He, he kind of parties with him, all to cover up David's sin against this man. One pastor has quipped that this drunken Hittite, somebody that you wouldn't expect, he's a foreigner. You wouldn't expect him to be faithful. This drunken Hittite proves more faithful than an Israelite king. 
One of the saddest things that I've seen in ministry is a hard heart. I've been in moments in pastoral counseling when people come and they come and they're confessing a sin that's in their life. And this sin is having tragic effects in their life. And you call them to repentance. And they're presented with these two options. Out of my self-reliance, do I try to cover this up and persist in my folly? Do I double down on my sin? Or do I seek the Lord in repentance? The calloused heart, the hard heart, through years of incremental steps of unfaithfulness, too often chooses the path of self-reliance. That's what David does here. With his first two attempts at cover up being a failure, what he does is he sends Uriah's death note by Uriah's own hand. And he plays the same card that Saul played. Remember what Saul did. Saul said, it's expedient for David to die by the hand of the Philistines. So what does David do here? He judges that it's expedient for Uriah to die by the hand of the Ammonites. And he tells Joab, he says, send Uriah into this, this hard fighting and then withdraw from him and let him be killed. And that's actually what happens. And if we read at the end of this chapter, verse 26, it seems as if David has gotten away with it. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house she became his wife and bore him a son. He's gotten away with it. It seems like his plan has worked. All of his scheming actually worked out. He, he committed his sin. He covered it up in the end. He brings this woman to be his wife. And it seems to his mind that he has a happy ending. One of the remarkable things about this chapter is the name of the Lord is absent. David is acting this whole time as if God doesn't exist, that he doesn't define and then judge sin. Look at verse 25. I'm gonna give a little more wooden of a translation here. David says, do not let this matter be evil before your eyes. What he's done, he's telling Joab, don't consider it evil. David in his pride has come to a place where he wants to redefine sin. Don't let it be evil before your eyes. But what does God say? At the very last line of this chapter. But the thing that David has done was evil before the eyes of the Lord. And David was operating this whole time as if God didn't exist, as if he didn't see sin and judge sin. David operated as if he could redefine what is right and wrong. But this was evil before the eyes of the Lord. In chapter 12, uh, God actually sends his prophet Nathan who, who tells David this parable of a, of a man who had seized what was not his. And David says at the end of this parable, that man deserves to die. And that's true of David. His sin means he deserves to die. 
Nathan has one of these lines that stands out in scripture when he says, you are the man. And there are consequences for David's sin that will play out over the next several chapters. If you remember the promise of the Davidic covenant is that David's son will sit on the throne forever. The consequence of his sin is that the sword will be there also. David's sin has tragic effects and not just in his life and the wife of those whom he sinned against immediately, but in the life of his family. And we'll see in this point too, David's paternal failures, that David's sons mimic his sin. And chapter 13 is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible because we see calloused hearts. And, and one of the things that stands out again is David's failure. Again, David was supposed to be different. We began 1 Samuel with a character named Eli. And what Eli failed to do was to discipline his sons. He let his sons perpetrate evil and God judged him for it. And then we encountered Samuel and Samuel had the same failure. He failed to discipline his sons. In David, we were supposed to have a ruler who was different. But we see again, he, he fails to shepherd God's people like he should. In chapter 13, what happens is, is David has this son, Amnon. And Amnon is a wicked man and he has a lust for another person. He sees something that is beautiful but forbidden and he takes it and he takes it by force. And the tragedy of this is that he rapes his half-sister. And the evil of his act is, is even more pronounced because he casts her out from him. This whole scheme that he conjures up is something that David is merely a pawn in. And when David hears about this evil act, in verse 21 it says, when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. He was very angry, but he did not act. He did not stand up for his daughter. He did not punish his son. He couldn't have undone the evil at that point, but he could have pursued justice. And he chose to do nothing. Well, Tamar's brother Absalom decides that he will take matters into his own hands. And he decides that he will seek retribution and he will murder his brother. And when he actually connives this plan and, and tells people to murder Amnon, at the end of it, David says this, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. And David's response to both of these grievous acts is not to pursue justice. His response is just to be angry and just to have his heart long for his king or for, for his son. David is not acting like the shepherd of his people. He won't even stand up for his daughter. He won't punish evil. And these internal failures within his family ultimately spill over into his political failures, our point three. Again, David was supposed to be different. David was supposed to shepherd God's people in peace and righteousness 
But his inept rule plunges the nation into a civil war in which many die. This character Absalom comes back into the scene here. And, and Absalom makes his way back from exile, back into Jerusalem. And, and we have a picture of Absalom here. I wanna read the description in chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Think about what we've seen in First and Second Samuel. Of whom does that remind you? Is that not a description of Saul? Self-reliant and proud Saul. Saul who doesn't need to wait on the Lord. Saul who doesn't seek the Lord. We have almost a reincarnation of the proud spirit of Saul here. Verse 26 when he cut the hair on his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, I would love to make this a statement about the virtues of baldness. Um, but I don't think that's the case here. I think what he's trying to say is that Absalom was tempted to trust in his good looks. And what Absalom does is this. At the end of this chapter, Absalom doesn't get the recognition that he wants, so he sets a field on fire. And that's a picture for the next several chapters because Absalom, again, does not get the recognition that he wants. He thinks he ought to be king, so he sets a nation on fire. He plunges the whole nation into a tragic civil war in which a number of Israelites die. And, and you, you sit there and you read this and you see these people making these schemes and their wicked hearts set against God. And again and again, it's this picture of hard-heartedness and not trusting and relying on God. How this rebellion ultimately comes to an end is that the two armies meet and, and Absalom realizes things aren't going well, so he flees away. And he's, he's riding his mule, and as he's riding his mule through this forest, his head, probably his hair, that very hair that he trusted in, becomes tangled in an oak tree. And there he dangles when the armies of David come upon him. That thing in which he took so much pride is the thing that brings him low. And he's killed there hanging from the tree. That's the patterns that Samuel has presented us with. God exalts the humble and brings down the proud self-reliant. God has brought him low. These chapters in the life of David are tragic. They're tragic because we see what happens when a heart is not set on God. Rarely in our own lives do we get a window into the events that will follow if we choose the path of sin. And I wonder if in David's life, if David knew what would happen in chapters 12 through 20, would he have gone back 
and acted differently in 11, one through four. This reminds me of a line my pastor used to say. He might've quoted it from someone else. He used to say this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay and keep you longer than you want to stay. Isn't that true in the life of David? Those incremental steps of hard-heartedness, sin unchecked, sin unconfessed, led him to the point where his family is in turmoil, the nation is in turmoil, and the turning point for all of this is his own sin. Brothers and sisters, uh, we're no different than David. If we choose the path of self-reliance, if we choose the path of hard-heartedness, it will cost us as well. These stories today have left us with examples that we might not desire evil. And it should leave us with this question. What will it take? What decisions do I need to make today so that my life is characterized by wholeheartedness and not hard-heartedness, that, that my life would be characterized by wholehearted devotion to God? We see a number of examples in the Bible of people who were faithful throughout the lifetime. People like, uh, people like Daniel, People like Paul. We also see those examples in the lives of people around us. Not long ago, I had an opportunity to go to a funeral for a mentor of mine. Ironically, his name was David. But thankfully, he took a different path than the David in the Bible. And when people talked about Dave's life, they got up and person after person told about his wholeheartedness. Pastors got up and said that this was a man that was wholeheartedly committed to God. He was always about serving others because he loved Jesus so much. Family members got up and testified that his whole life was a testimony of his love for Jesus. One of the most profound things was when his daughter got up. His daughter stood up and she said this, my dad loved Jesus. He was a man of godly character. He was the same man on Saturday night as he was on Sunday morning. Oh, that that would be true of my life. That my kids, those who know me best would say, he is a man of wholehearted devotion to God. The question for us, what sins do we need to repent of? What patterns do we need to establish so that our lives are on a trajectory of wholehearted devotion to God? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word that gives us examples of warning. 
Thank you for your word that provides us hope. And my prayer this morning is that you would work in our hearts, that we wouldn't persist in patterns of self-reliance, but that you would lead us in the path of repentance so that as a people, we might be characterized by wholehearted devotion. We ask for your grace and your working among us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.